I want to share with you a couple of ways that you can get involved here at Christ Church. The first is our membership class. Now, you might hear membership and you think, okay, Sam's Club. Is this some kind of, some kind of ploy to get my money, to get me to spend my money? Or you might think of a country club. It's neither of those. Certainly not a money grab and definitely not a country club atmosphere. When we talk about membership, it's a, it's a tangible way for you to reciprocate the commitment that God has made to you by committing to his local body, the church here. And so when we make a plea for you to become a member, it's, a, it's an opportunity for you to commit to the Lord through his local church, just as he's committed to you through Christ. So we'd encourage you, be a part of our membership class. It's going to be a four-week deal Sunday mornings, okay? It's going to start March 7th, run through March 28th. It'll be from, I believe, uh, 10-10 or 11, no, 10.15 to 11.10. I knew I had that right, okay? So make sure you go online, sign up for our membership class. If you've been coming to church here for a while and are interested in that, we'd love for you to be a part of the family and commit in that way. The second thing I want to put before you again is this. You've heard about the devotionals for land, of course. These are for sale in the commons. Grab these, get one for yourself, get one uh, at the me plus three deal and, and give it away to three other people. Give it to a neighbor, a family member, a co-worker. Encourage them to in, in, engage with God during this Lenten season. We also want to support you as a family to engage with God during this Lenten season. So we have this beautiful family devotional for children. And these are available for free, by the way, downstairs. 40 days, little journal entries. It's awesome. We would love for you to take this gift from us and engage in a family, as a family, this Lenten season to know the Lord more. So please grab one of these on the way out. Let's engage and let's seek the Lord during this Lenten season together. Let's pray. Oh, Father in heaven, we thank you for this, this morning and we thank you for the families. Yes, the next generation that's represented here today. What a celebration. And Lord, as we approach this Lenten season, we desire to know Christ intimately and more. In fact, Lord, that's the cry of our heart this morning as we look at this passage that's already been read here. I pray, Lord, that as we consider your word, as we consider faith in these days, that you would draw us close and that we wouldn't resist, that we would turn to you and embrace Christ more and more. Lord, we pray all of this in his holy and matchless name. Amen. So today we're concluding our series called First Things First. And I've been thinking about this series. It's been seven weeks of looking at some of the greatest prayers that we find in Scripture. And I'm wondering this, what's going to be the result of this series? And if you think back, and if you've been tracking with the sermons, which by the way, you can find on our YouTube channel. If, if you're tracking with us, you've seen that we've talked about the primacy, the place of prayer in our lives. In fact, we looked at the Eisenhower decision-making matrix the first week. And we talked about how urgent and how important prayer is. We talked about it's the primary thing. There's nothing more urgent, there's nothing more important than praying. We also have just looked at some of the, the great, powerful prayers that we can pray. We've looked at prayers of confession, for instance, in Psalm 51, you might have adopted that as a prayer of your own. We've also looked at intercessory prayer, where we go before God and pray for another. Great, great things. What will be the result of this series? 
You know, I, I put this before all of us today. I would hope that the result of our Christian lives, certainly of, of, of engagement and prayer, that the result would be transformation. That we'd be changed. In fact, I think that's one of the great purposes of the Christian life, is that we would be changed, that we would be transformed. That's what our hope is. And so as we go to prayer, we turn to prayer in hopes, not just that we'll get something, but that we'll be transformed. You know, when you think of transformation, you might think, okay, well, that means I've got to learn something. You know, I've got to learn doctrine. Doctrine's a great thing. And I would hope that as a part of this church family, we would all grow in our understanding of doctrine. That's a part of it. But there's another thing. And, and that's what I would call a heart level experience. You know, doctrine's very important, but let's not disregard a heart level experience with God. What I would suggest to us is this, that if, if we only have doctrine and not a heart level experience with God, we won't be transformed. There's, there's a threat that, that we'll grow into being nominal Christians. You can have a grasp of great doctrine, but without a heart experience, I think we eventually will drift into nominal Christianity. Christianity just by name. And so I'd say this, Christianity without a real experience of God will eventually be no Christianity at all. That's how important it is for us to have a heart level experience with God. And so as I consider this series, and think about what will be the result of this. My hope would be that we'd be transformed. That yeah, we got a hold of some doctrine. But also that we as a people, as we seek God in prayer, would have a heart level experience with God. You know, I think a person historically that understood this is the man that we know as the Apostle Paul. If you're new to the church, the Apostle Paul is someone who wrote most of the New Testament for us. We're going to look at one of his letters to a group of people who lived in ancient Ephesus today. You've already heard it read by Malachi. We're going to look at chapter 3. And here's what Paul understood. Paul understood that, that we can't pray and just hope that we can somehow produce an experience or feeling. It's not us. Paul knew that we prayed in a response to who God is himself. That is why we pray. And Paul knew this. He knew that prayer is both a conversation and an encounter with God. And we give this great example today of this very thing, this experience and this conversation, this encounter with God that Paul has left behind for us in Ephesians 3. So turn there with me if you have your Bibles. If you have a Bible app on your phone, that's a great place to, to get the scriptures as well. version is one we recommend. Let's look at Ephesians 3, verses 14 and 15. And here, he sets the tone for us in terms of this passage. And this is something for us to consider when it comes to the point of the Christian life, this transformation. Let's read the scriptures. Ephesians 3, 14 says, For this reason, I kneel before the Father, from whom every family in heaven and on earth derives its name. Let's pause there for a moment. 
he's setting the tone again for us. And he says this, Paul says, for this reason, I kneel before the Father. You know, check this out. Back in, in ancient times, the Jews would stand when they prayed. That was the posture of prayer, the common, the common posture. Even the Greeks and the Romans, when they prayed to their little G gods, they would stand. And so in antiquity, the way a person prayed was by standing. Paul here is saying, I kneel before the Father. And I think this represents a few things. First of all, it gives us an understanding that we're praying to this great God in heaven who has authority, who is over all of us, who's the creator. He is the almighty. And it also shows us this, that he is earnestly, passionately, wholeheartedly pleading with God. Isn't that a great picture? He kneels before the Father in reverence of who he is, but also because he is so engaged, wholeheartedly giving himself in this prayer. He's setting the tone. And who's he praying to? It says he prays before the Father with a capital F. I love this about the Christian, the Christian faith. It is something that is not disconnected. It's not impersonal. In fact, the Christian life is meant to be intimate. That, that we pray to the God who's called us by name, who knows us. You know, if you read in the book of, of Ephesians, if you read chapter one, you see that God has adopted us. That's the imagery it's using. God has adopted us to be his children. We see in chapter one that he's made us heirs. We have an inheritance. God's given it to us. And then we see in chapter two that, that he has made us a part of his household. I mean, it's incredible. He is our father. And so there's this intimacy that he's praying with as well. He says, I kneel before the Father. And then I, get, I love this. He says, from whom every family in heaven and on earth derives its name. You know, think of a painter or a potter who creates a, a work of art. What do they do? They somehow, they somehow put their mark on that painting. Or they put that mark on that, on that piece of pottery they've created. My brother-in-law is a woodworker and, and he works in his, in, his, in his barn and he works on projects and when he creates, whether it's a cornhole set or a piece of furniture, he has a brand with his family name on it and he stamps that brand on whatever he makes. It, it bears his name, his family name, do you see it? This is what God has done, it says, for every family in heaven and on earth. All families are stamped with this name, this image of God, created in his image. I would say this has meaning for us as a church. When we pray, we're praying to one whose name we bear. We'll make it really local here, Christ Church, whether you're worshiping with us online or here in person. We have been stamped, we have been marked by the name of the one whom we serve. Tell you what, we, we better seek him because we bear his name. You know, I found this to be true in the church as I, as I consider the way the church in America is working. You know, we've bought more, it seems, into meetings and business plans, which, by the way, have their value. We've bought more into those things than I think we bought into prayer. 
as churches. We're more interested in strategy that we come up with than praying. We need to be a people of prayer. We need to kneel before the Father. Because, listen, our name, our very, our very identity is wrapped up in him. Don't you see it? And so the tone has been set for us here. It's significant. And it's clear. And it's like, look, take this seriously. This life of prayer is meant to be something that, that, that we're like wholeheartedly engaged in. Let's go back to the text. Ephesians 3, picking back up in verse 16. He says this. He says, I pray that out of his glorious riches, he may strengthen you with power through his spirit in your inner being. Okay, so this is great, okay? Paul prays that the Ephesians would be given the gifts they need to faithfully navigate the drama that's happening in the world around them. That's what he's praying. He says, look, out of your riches, God, strengthen them with power in, your, in their inner being. And here's what I love. He's praying for this power so they can navigate what's happening in the world around them. Listen, the world around them was crazy. In Ephesus, there was a goddess named Artemis. You can read about it in the book of Acts that was worshipped. So this was a pagan society. These weren't people who were, who were culturally, across the culture, worshipping the god that we worship. No, they had a goddess named Artemis that they worshipped. And the government leaders were also pagan. And so there were forces against the Christians that Paul is writing to. But I, 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 I find this fascinating. He doesn't pray that they would be taken out of those circumstances. He doesn't pray to God, take them out of those, that situation, put them in a place where there's everyone around them is a Christian. That's not what he says at all. He doesn't pray for them physically. He doesn't pray for political power. None of that. Those things could be derived by human, by human means. No, he prays instead that they would be strengthened with power through the Spirit. Where? In their inner being. Not that they'd be taken out of their circumstances. Not that they'd, they'd, they'd be powerful politically. No, he prays that they'd be strengthened in their inner person. I think this is talking to us too, don't you? I mean, consider what it said, what Paul also writes in 2 Corinthians 4, 16. He says, therefore, we do not lose heart, but though our outer person is decaying, though our outer person is decaying, yet our inner person is being renewed day by day. What Paul's concern was, was the inner reality. That's what his concern was for his people, I believe this is written for us too. That's the concern. You know, these people were suffering, he was writing to, because they were a minority among a majority of people who didn't love God. There was economic ramifications. Yes, there were, there were political ramifications. There were societal ramifications to them. And yet, what does he pray? He says, I pray you'll be strengthened in your being, even though everything around you is decaying, even though your own bodies are decaying, I pray you'll be strengthened and renewed and transformed in your inner person. Listen, God addresses issues of the heart and he strengthens us, where? Inwardly. This is Paul's prayer. As he kneels before the Father, he's got one shot and he says, listen, I pray you'll strengthen them, Lord, inwardly by your spirit. 
Because that's what it's going to take for them to live this life and to walk faithfully. That you would give them power in the inner place. Do you see it? This is how we could pray. Look, you're wondering how you face the circumstances that you're dealing with. You wonder how you deal with the challenges of the world. Man, let's adopt Paul's prayer. And let's pray that God would strengthen us in the inner person, in the inward parts. He doubles down on this. Let's continue in the text. He doubles down. He says, again in 16, I pray out of his glorious riches that he may strengthen you with power through his spirit in your inner being. Why? So that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. So that Christ may dwell. Let me tell you a little story. So my, my wife's parents, my, my in-laws, have, have a little dog. His name is Sammy. I have a picture here of Sammy. This is actually his Facebook profile picture. Seriously, he has a Facebook account. Okay, so Sammy the dog has been around for a long time. He's beloved in the family, but let's be real here. I gotta be honest. I am his least favorite family member. Sammy and I just like, we don't hang, we don't chill. Like we don't, we don't do life together. In fact, we kind of have uh, an agreement. And the agreement is this basically, I'll leave you alone, you leave me alone, Sammy. That's how it goes. So a couple of years ago, I was, I was invited, and this is when we were living in Memphis. I was invited to come to Western Pennsylvania to officiate a wedding. And I stayed with Stan Lois. I stayed with my in-laws. Now, keep in mind, Sammy and I have this like deal that I don't bother you, you don't bother me. Well, I'm staying in, in the guest room, you know, my suitcase on the floor, everything unpacked. I go to the wedding. I come home from the wedding, go upstairs to change my clothes. And when I walk into the guest room, right next to my suitcase, I see that, and how shall I say this? Sammy had left me a little present. It was a brown present, if you don't know what I mean. Keep in mind, Sammy doesn't leave brown presents around the house. This was an act of terrorism, people. And Sammy was making it abundantly clear this. He didn't want my stay to be permanent. He wanted my stay to be temporary. Listen, this scripture talks, it says, look, that Christ may dwell in your hearts. You know, do you feel like sometimes that, that Christ's presence in your life is temporary? You ever feel that way? I mean, I'm saying you feel that way. You ever feel like, oh, I, just, I don't know that God's with me, you know? I don't feel him. Maybe you feel him like when you're in a service like this, when you're singing a worship song. Or, or maybe, maybe you feel his presence in the best of times. Or, or maybe, you, maybe you feel his presence when you really need something, right? But sometimes it feels like for us that we, we dodge and weave out of God's presence in our life. That's not what this passage is saying. That's not, that's not the way it should be. The way we should think about God's presence is this. He's come to dwell with us. The ancient Greek language means this. That word dwell is to settle. That Christ has come to settle in our hearts, in our inner part. The strength that Paul's talking about is everything to do with the fact that Christ has come to dwell settle in our hearts. He's not coming to pitch a tent, folks. He's not coming to stay in the guest room. He's moving in. And Jesus wants to move in with all his stuff. 
Let me tell you about stuff. Here's the kind of stuff you get when Jesus moves in. Look at Galatians 5, another of Paul's letters that we read about in the New Testament. It says this, the fruit of the Spirit, his presence is love, joy, peace, forbearance, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such things there's no law. Look, when Jesus moves in, he brings his fruits with him. So you're wondering, like, oh, I'm just so, I'm so depressed and I'm, I'm so sad and I'm struggling so much. Look, the prayer is that Christ would dwell in your hearts. That through his spirit, God would strengthen you in the inner person. And the, and the prayer is that we would then have, because he dwells in us, his peace, his love, his joy, his kindness, forbearance, all these things. Isn't it a beautiful promise? Jesus wants to be every bit a part of who you are. He wants to dwell in you, take up permanent residence, not temporary. Mm, what a powerful prayer. Again, something we can adopt. First things first, right? This is, this is how we can pray. The scripture goes on and says this, I pray that you, being rooted and established in love, may have power together with all the Lord's holy people, to grasp how wide and long and high and deep is the love of Christ, and to know this love that surpasses knowledge, that you may be filled to the measure of all the fullness of God. You know, when I think about those words that are strung together there, when it talks about how, how wide and long and high and deep, it makes me think of the Grand Canyon. I mean, what can you say about the Grand Canyon? Look at this picture. It's incredible. My, my daughter accused this of being a fake picture. I said, it's not fake. It's a real picture. It's how grand, that's how incredible the Grand Canyon is. I mean, the Grand Canyon, one of the seven wonders of the world. The Grand Canyon, it's, it's magnificent. It's powerful. Here's the thing. I've never seen the Grand Canyon in person. A lot of you have, I haven't. And so you know what I have right now about the Grand Canyon? I have an opinion. An opinion based on what I read about it on Wikipedia. An opinion based on pictures that I could find on the internet. But one day, and I hope this will happen not too long from now, I'll stand before the Grand Canyon and I'll experience it. And then, I'll really know how massive and how powerful and how beautiful it is. Do you get it? I mean, th this is what Paul is praying in essence for us and for the Ephesians. He said, look, I, I pray that you would not just like know intellectually, not just on a doctrinal level, but that you would have an appreciation of this incredible knowledge and beauty of God that's unsearchable that's more vast than you can imagine, that you would know that. Look, growing in the knowledge and experience of God's love never, ever reaches an end. It never reaches an end. I mean, what's the point of this series? What's gonna be the result of it? My prayer would be transformation, that we would be growing in the knowledge and experience of God and that, and that this would never end in our lives. That searching his love and growing in his love would never, ever end for us. Paul's prayer, my prayer for, for this people, our prayer as a church, this is what it is. 
And I love this part here. He's talking about this unsearchable knowledge and love that's so, that's so wide and long and high and deep. And he says this, he says that he hopes that we, he prays that we would have power together with all the Lord's holy people to grasp this. Together with all God's holy people, all the Lord's holy people. I think that's a really interesting statement. You know, holy people. It seems to be that a part of understanding the love of Christ is knowing that his love goes beyond me. It seems that somehow us understanding and fully grasping or more fully grasping love of God isn't something that's just individual. It's something that happens together. That as a church family, as a body, we grow to know this, this love and the knowledge of him more than we ever could solo. Do you see that? That's, that's really important. You know, he tells us God's holy people, the Lord's holy people. Huh. How many of you, raise your hand, how many of you feel holy today? How many of you feel holy? I've got a couple brave souls in the congregation who feel holy. How many of you are holy? Raise your hand. Got a few more hands. Someone yells out in Christ. That's right. How are we made holy? We're made holy in Christ. It's not by our own efforts. Together with all the Lord's holy people. You might be wondering, well, how can I become holy? How can I feel holy? How can I raise my hand and say, I am holy? You know, last week, I introduced to you something called the four D's. You know, to understand how, how we can raise your hand and say, you know what? I'm holy. I'm set apart. I've been, I've been purified, cleansed by the Lord. There's, there's, there's a way that that can take place. You can have that confidence. First, it's this. It's understanding that, that God is a designer. That's the first D. There's a design. That God has created the heavens and the earth. That God has created you and me. And because of that, there's a sense of ownership in his design. And he loves us. He cares more deeply than we could ever understand. I mean, his love is unsearchable. This is part of his design. There's a complication. That complication is the second D, our defiance. We become defiant. I mean, we go our own way. We, we don't consider God's laws something that we should follow. We don't consider his ways always something that we should obey. And so we've broken fellowship with God through sin, our defiance. And this sin ultimately leads to death. So though God's the designer, we've been defiant. The great thing is this. God has delivered to us a solution. And that solution comes from the designer in the person of his one and only son, the son of God, Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ who went to the cross, died an agonizing death so that we could be forgiven of our defiance, forgiven of our sins, and we trust in him. God has delivered to us a solution. So God's design and our defiance and, and, and his delivering a solution to us through Jesus sets up for you and me 
a decision. You want to be holy? You want to be counted among God's holy people, the Lord's holy people? Well, then there's a decision that needs to be made. And that decision is this. Will you admit that you are defiant? That you are a sinner? Will you believe in Jesus, that he's the son of God? He died on a cross. He rose again. The great hope. He didn't stay in the grave. Will you confess? We repent. That's the decision. In light of God's design and what he's delivered, in light of our defiance. You know, I give you a 50. And the 50 is this. Done. Jesus cried out on the cross, it is finished. And you know what that means? That means that we can be counted among the Lord's holy people. And so when I say, how many of you feel holy? Because of Christ. Someone said it back there, in Christ. We can raise the hand and say, you know what? Not because of me, but because of what God has done. I am among the Lord's holy people. And together, we experience his presence and we grow in him. What an incredible truth. It's there for you for the taking if you make that decision. One last thing to say about this Lord's holy people thing, because one of the ways I'm suggesting to us that we grow in the knowledge of the love of God is by, is by grasping who he is, and it happens in the context of the Lord's holy people. That's what we see here in the passage. So one of the things that we have to consider is this, you know, I ask you the question, raise your hand if you're holy, and we talk about how do you become a part of God's holy people, the Lord's holy people. Another question is this, who isn't holy? Who isn't holy? Who have you and I cut off from access to that gift? You know, I have a tendency to want to disqualify people from being counted among the Lord's holy people, people who annoy me, people who grate on me, people that, that, that I don't care for, people who have wronged me. Listen, don't disqualify people from being a part of God's holy people. No, we understand this. We understand that a part of me knowing the love of Christ is knowing that it goes beyond me. And so therefore, I have to extend this, this love, this grace that I've received to another person. As I've been reading this passage this week, I had a couple of convictions, and I want to share them with you. Perhaps these will be your convictions too. You know, the first conviction I have is this, is that I would be a person of prayer. You know, I talked earlier about how it seems like in the modern church in America, we've moved away from being a people of prayer. I don't get it. I don't know why I've done this. I don't know why we've done this. How do we lose sight of it? I mean, think about Paul. Paul was a person of prayer, no doubt about it. Even go back in church history, there was a man named George Fox, an early church leader, who would walk the fields and pray for hours at a time every day. In more recent times, there's a guy who's a hero to me and, and even our pastor, John Guest, who, 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 who would pray way more often than anything else he was a part of a ministry. His name was John Stott. Well, I want to commit to be a person of prayer. If anything good is going to come from me, if anything good is going to happen in this church, then I need to be a person of prayer. We need to be a people of prayer. 
So my first conviction is this, is that we would be people of prayer. I hope that you'll join me in that effort. By the way, there's tangible ways you could do that. I mean, this Lenten season, we've got these books. There's a prayer in these books. You could pray together as a family. Grab one of these today. We got plenty and they're free. You can join us in being a people of prayer. Come on Wednesday nights. You know, talk about being together with all the Lord's holy people. We've got churches represented from around the city as a part of our Lenten series. You saw a little video earlier with these powerful preachers that God has used in the city of Pittsburgh. Come and pray with us. Let's be a people of prayer. That's my first conviction. The second conviction is this, is that I would be obedient, that I would obey, that I would pray, and that I would obey. You know, Paul talks about kneeling before the Father. He understood there was authority in God, authority that belonged to him. He knew that God was holy. And so Paul was seeking to obey God. And he was praying that, that we, those who follow Christ, would have strength, power in the inner parts so that we could be faithful and obey. And so here's what I know. In order to know and grow, to be transformed, I have to choose to pray and obey. In order to know and grow, I must choose to pray and obey. It's a really simple formula I have for us there. That, that is what I want to convict to be. That's what I'm convicted of as I read this. And I consider this passage and this prayer that's put before us. You know, what will be the end result of this series? What, what will be the, the mark of our church? I would say this. If we desire to be all that God has created us to be, both as individuals, as a church, then we must be a people of prayer. That's what I want to do. I want to be a kind of person that has an impact on my neighbors, on my family, on the church around me. I want us to be the kind of church that has an impact in the community, in the city, in the nations. I'm telling you, in order to, to, to grow and to know, we must pray and obey. This is where it begins, that we'd be transformed. And that the light of Christ that's within us, the inner strength of Jesus, would shine out in love and joy and peace to all the world. So here's how I want to conclude this series. I think Paul's left us with a great, kind of like a benediction, honestly, in verses 20 and 21. And I want to read these to you. And I want to speak them over us as a congregation. And so as I'm asking you to do, would you stand? This is my prayer for you. This is what I want to speak and pray over you. The band's going to come out. And after we go through this, they're going to lead us in a song. Here are the concluding words. Hear them from Paul. They're adopted as ours. Verse 20. Scripture says, Now to him who is able to do immeasurably more than we could ask or imagine. How about that? God can do immeasurably more, more than you can ever think, more than you can fathom. God wants to do that through his people, through the church, immeasurably more than you can think or imagine. He wants to do it in your life. He wants to do it in your family. 
He wants to do immeasurably more through our church. It says, according to his power, that is at work within us. Listen, this immeasurably more isn't because of our strength or who we are. No, it's because of his power that's at work where? Within us. It's this inner power that his prayer has been about. To him, to God, be glory where? In the church. We're a family, we're together. To him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations, I love it. From those little babies we baptized to those faces you may have seen on the stage last week if you watched the sermon. To all generations, forever and ever, amen. We love you, church. Let's be a people of prayer. Let's know God intimately. Let's be transformed. And may God use us to do a great work in the city of Pittsburgh and beyond. Amen? Amen. Amen.